Welcome to this edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Always terrific to have you with us. Alongside Chris Dorch, I'm Kevin Ingram. Coming up, we got a lot to get to. We have a big weekend of games on the way. We'll talk about Chris's trip over to Knoxville to see Tennessee, Illinois last Saturday. Lots of stuff going on uh, about coaches and uh, coaching futures and those sorts of things. And uh, we'll also say goodbye to a couple of well-known uh, figures from not only basketball, but from our, our careers as well. Chris, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. Uh, this this week is kind of reminds me why I got into this. There, there's just so much going on, and and it just I don't know. Uh, this is one of those weeks where you seem to can't keep track of everything that's going on. Yeah, it seems like there there are things going on on the court and a whole lot of stuff going on off the floor. Man, there's going to be some terrific games coming up this weekend. Let me give you the the quick schedule, and uh, we'll jump into other things. UConn versus Gonzaga in Seattle. That's one of the headliners. Kansas against Indiana. Baylor and Michigan State. Texas A&M against Houston. Clemson plays Memphis. Arizona against Purdue and Indianapolis. Uh, North Carolina against Kentucky in the CBS Sports Classic. You're going to get Alabama and Creighton. You're going to get NC State and Tennessee and San Antonio. So, I mean, they're... And, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg. There are tons of great games. I'm going to be in Fort Worth. Uh, Vanderbilt plays Texas Tech there as part of a, a triple header of games uh, at, at Dickey's Arena. So, man, it's going to be a fun Saturday. Uh, if you're not calling a game or going to a game, just camp out on the couch for a few hours. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll tell you, there's seven unbeatens left, and there won't be after Saturday. Uh, Texas A&M plays Houston, and – uh, Texas A&M has lost three times, but they're still tough to deal with. So I look at that. Uh, Clemson's at Memphis, 9-0 Clemson at Memphis. Uh, that's another one uh, that, that you just don't know about. Baylor, 9-0 uh, and versus a 4-5 and Michigan State team that has got to be good and ticked off right now because they were preseason top five by everybody. And I just don't think – anybody could have forecast them being four and five at this point. So Baylor's going in there and it's going to be interesting. Uh, Michigan state needs a big win. Yeah, it's been interesting to just kind of see how their season has gone so far. And, uh, yeah, the expectations were really big. But it always seems like Tom Izzo figures it out. And they, they play a, a killer schedule every year. And this part of the year, people are always wondering, like, what are they going to be like? And then by the time March yep. rolls around, they're always good. And it feels like there's the, a method to his madness. Yeah, there is a method uh, to his madness. He's well, probably well. not losing a, a night's sleep. <laughs> uh, Been there it, and done it that. It reminds me <laughs> of a quote that I think Fran Fraschilla made when all this had come out about the FBI wiretaps and all that and improprieties in college basketball, uh, Fran said, I, I bet Tom is sleeping like a baby. <laughs> and and I'll bet he's sleeping like a baby right now because uh, five losses, eh, you know, as long as I get enough to get in the NCAAs and, and let's see what we can do. His teams, uh, he's only won it once, and it's been a long time ago, 2000, but they don't seem to get put out early. You know, they, they seem to get their money's worth when they get in the NCAAs. So uh, I don't think he's too concerned at the moment. Here's an interesting story that, that you saw on ESPN.com about the Week 6 AP poll and how it forecasts good things for the, the teams 
at the top of that poll. Crazy. Uh, the last 19 NCAA champions have all been ranked in the top 12 in the Week, week 6 Associated Press poll. Uh, it's been more accurate than polls from any other week of the season over that time frame that covers almost two decades. One missing was the 0203 Syracuse team. They were in the others receiving votes that week. And, of course, Carmelo Anthony and others uh, led him to the national championship that year. The part I thought was really interesting was about UConn. Their titles in the 2010-2011 season and 13-14 and then last year all followed a similar pattern. They were unranked or very lowly ranked to start the year. They went unbeaten early. They peaked in the week six poll. They had six to nine losses in conference play. And then they went on a run and won the national championship. So I, I thought that part was especially interesting about that story. It's pretty cool. And and just for so people will know it's it's Arizona, Kansas, Purdue, Houston, Yukon, Baylor, Marquette, Creighton, North Carolina, Gonzaga, Oklahoma, and Tennessee are the top the top dozen. It's weird how it turns out, but my theory is, is just this. You know, with the advent of ESPN and and some of these made for TV games that are so prevalent during Feast Week and you know, now actually, well, you just mentioned a, a ton of great games. I think by week six, the the field of teams that can win it has kind of weeded itself out because of the difficult schedules they play. Of that twelve, uh, Tennessee has lost three times, but they've still got enough quality wins, and they've played the number four ranked schedule in the country that uh, people still uh, think highly of them and still think they're a national championship contenders so i would be very surprised if 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 we don't get to a whatever it is 20 20th straight year of this becoming true yeah that feels like those teams you mentioned that top 12 it feels like you could pick a national champion out of those teams so uh we'll we'll see if that pattern holds true for a a 20th year here but it it feels like there's a good chance it might i'd be very surprised yeah me too one one of these did not win at all yeah no doubt about it now you got out went to a game last saturday and i sat on the couch and watched this particular game the tennessee illinois game uh there was a lot of orange in the building for sure but uh you were texting me later and you're out there rubbing elbows the stars of cbs man that was pretty impressive yeah i i got to meet uh well i i know coach raff raff he uh he called me uh somehow the call came to my office and he said i want to buy a blue ribbon and i i didn't let him know who i was at first but we're friends and i said uh i can't do that coach and he was like what and i said uh coach this is chris i can't do that because i'm going to give you one and he said, no, no, you can't do that, man. You're, you're trying to make, this is a business. And I said, no, if for no other reason than send it in Jerome. I, <laughs> everybody remembers send it in Jerome when Jerome Lane broke that. Remember who threw him the pass? Sean Miller. I was watching Sean that Miller. game. I remember that well. I yeah. was watching when that and, happened. And so I told him, I said, dude, I, I, I've admired you for many years. I'm giving you a daggone book. So I gave him a book and uh, we talked after the game and and uh, who walks up but Jay Wright and, and he says, Jay, let me introduce you to Chris Dorch. And Jay's like all surprised looking, you know, and he says, oh, it's, a, it's an honor to meet you. I'm like, dude, it's an honor to meet you. <laughs> and and uh, the it was pretty cool. But <laughs> that game was a microcosm of my career. I showed up an hour and a half early and I saw some assistant coaches and, and associate ADs that I had not seen before. Uh, 
Uh, I talk to the radio crews, talk to other writers. It's it's just how you do it. It's how I've always done it. You just sort of work the room. And I think that's how I've been able to be successful in this business is just, you know, make friends and talk about basketball. I, I cannot believe I get paid to do that. Yeah, that that's really and the game was great uh, right it was a terrific game but that, that's a whole lot of the fun of it for me too is to, to see everybody and, and talk to you know, the other broadcasters you're talking about the, the tennessee guys I, I know they're the rival for vanderbilt but bob and bert are, are good friends oh they're two of the best yeah, bob kessling and bert bertle camp uh, we, we always have fun visiting with those guys uh, whenever we see them and uh, I, I met the Illinois guys before too. It's been uh, a number of years ago. We, we played there one time, but um, that that part to me is always fun. And I, over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of the officials too. And uh, you know, quite a few of them live yeah. here in this Nashville area. So um, I see guys all the time that I know. Todd Austin is one of my favorites that I've uh, known for a long time from seeing him over the years at, at different levels. And uh, a guy named Will Howard who actually played at Belmont. He could never do our Belmont games when I was there, but I see him a lot now. He, he uh, officiates in the sec lots of other guys like that um it's it's fun to to see everybody and as you say do you know just do some catching up and yeah that that's cool uh you telling about bill raftery uh i was thinking the story was going to end with him saying huh, double order uh, of, of blue ribbon <laughs> onions yeah uh minimum uh, like when a team he, when a team uh, opens with zone is minimum principles <laughs> he was great though because uh he told me, he said, I, I was thinking about you yesterday. And I I said, really? And, and he said, yeah. He said, I figured I'd see you at this game. Uh, and and uh, I said, sure enough, I, I had to catch up with him. They were trying to catch a plane and, and trying to beat feet out the door. And oh, I bet. people were stopping for pictures and stuff. <laughs> but uh, Jay Wright is, uh, as I told him to his face, uh, uh, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for what he accomplished during his career. And I heard an interesting story, oddly enough, from somebody I spoke to before the game, a former Tennessee assistant. Jay Wright was offered the Tennessee job before Buzz Peterson took it. Huh. And uh, when his agent found out, uh, he was at Hofstra at the time, his agent called Villanova, who hadn't fired Steve Lapis, and said, look, uh, you know, he's about to go to Tennessee. If you want him, you better do something. And the rest is history. And I asked Jay as he was walking out the door, I said, Coach, I got to ask you one more thing. Can you confirm that story? And he said, yes, I can. Huh. So, uh, boy, he would have done great at Tennessee. Yeah, a couple of national championships at Villanova later. Uh, it worked out well uh, for him, for sure. He, he was a fantastic coach. And you, oh, yeah. it, it's great, one thing to win one. dude. One thing to win one national championship, but that second one always puts you in it. It feels like a, it's a validator. A, yeah, and a different sort and of he's class of coaches. I mean, I don't know that that he had to do this or, or whether it was just from his mind. I, I suspect it was a little of both, but it was still brilliant. He, he was one of the first to go four out, one in. And, you know, he always valued jump shooters. And that's how most of the teams that have done it here recently, UConn had tons of jump shooters. I, I think you have to have that. And he knew that and – and he, what he gave up in in size, he he made up for in shooting ability and quickness. And the other team's big guys had to guard their smaller guys. So he was uh, he was a brilliant tactician. 
One of those pretty good-sized dudes, uh, Chris Jenkins, hit a, a significant three-pointer, of course, in that game oh, yeah. in Houston against North Carolina. I always loved his reaction when they showed him on the sideline. He was just standing there. I always said it was bang uh, when, yeah. when the shot went in. <laughs> bang. Bang. Chris, uh, another coach that uh, I know you've known over the years uh, has actually said so long to college basketball, and that, that is uh, Cliff Ellis. The guy's been around, boy, a long time. Even going back to the mid-'70s at Cumberland, which is not far down the road from yeah. where I am. That, that's in Lebanon, Tennessee. But South Alabama and Clemson, a successful run. Auburn had some really good teams there. And then uh, most recently, Coastal Carolina, uh, a guy who went to college not too far down the road here either. But uh, he had a long and successful career, uh, finished his career as a ninth winning as coach in D1 history. So uh, all the best to Cliff Ellis as uh, he heads into retirement. Yeah, I've, I've known him for a long time. We've actually bonded over music. He had a band when he was a, a young man and, and really could have gone either way into music or coaching. He's been around some of the greats, uh, hanging around Muscle Souls Studio down in Alabama. He's told me some great stories about that, but when I spoke to him for the Coastal Carolina story this uh, summer, I had an, a feeling that this would be it. He gave me a quote that was pretty telling. He said, I feel like I'm going to a sword fight with a butter knife. I've just come off the worst season I've ever had, and it's because of the transfer portal or NIL. There was a time here when we beat Clemson twice, LSU twice, West Virginia. Those days are gone. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it'll be a lot tougher. And I didn't expect him to to leave mid-year, but he said he just wanted the, the program to move on, and he just turned 78. So uh, I texted with him the other day, and he still, uh, uh, you know, he said, when whenever you hear some great music, send it my way. So uh, he appreciates me putting him on to Susan Tedeschi, huh. which is, she's a great blues singer and now has a band with Derek Trucks, who was with the Almond Brothers, which is her husband. So uh, he's never let me forget that. He's very appreciative, but I'll miss Cliff. Uh, I really started to get to know him when he was at Auburn, uh, but I've known him quite a few years, and uh, he was definitely the elder statesman for sure. Uh, transfer season never really seems to end. Uh, former Kansas State forward Naquan Tomlin has committed to Memphis, entered the portal on Friday after he was suspended indefinitely back in October for an arrest related to a bar fight. He was a key player in Kansas State's run to the Elite Eight last year, averaged 10 points and five rebounds. And uh, he'd be eligible to play at Memphis as soon as he's admitted to school. He's expected to graduate this week. Uh, and he could play right away for uh, Penny Hardaway's team. They're 7-2. and two. Uh, The status uh, of their player Jordan Brown is uncertain, a, a, a guy who's certainly a, a well-traveled player. But that would be a, a big addition to Memphis if Tomlin's able to, to get eligible and play right away, especially as they, you start to turn the corner and get into conference play here in a couple weeks. Yeah, it just shows you the craziness of, of NIL, just like Cliff alluded to. I texted with Bob Marlin, who was Jordan Brown's coach for two years down at Louisiana. He's he's an old buddy, too. And uh, uh, he said that Jordan, who was would have been player of the year in the Sun Belt this year, that's the second uh, preseason player of the year in the Sun Belt that Bob has lost to a power conference school. He had a guard that went to Ohio State a couple of years ago. And ended up averaging four points there. And and Jordan just w- was not playing. Uh, Bob said he'd heard that it was because he couldn't guard well enough. And the the rumor is, is that Jordan Brown's dad, who was active in Jordan's career, might have gotten into it with Penny Hardaway. So who knows? But uh, 
Jordan is, is likely to leave there. He's been at Nevada, where he was the Mountain West freshman of the year. He's been to uh, Arizona, where he was the Pac-12 sixth man of the year. And he went to Louisiana, where he was uh, all, all first-team Sunbelt, and I think Sunbelt player of the year. Would have been this year for sure. So he's had a successful career, but I don't know. You get crossways with Penny Hardaway. That, that pretty much is the death knell. As long as we're in that part of the country, what about Ole Miss? They're off to a good start with Chris Beard in his first year as coach in Oxford. What are you seeing in that group? Well, it, it's uncanny how uh, he has been able to get things done in a hurry. His first head coaching job was at Little Rock. They were 13 and 18 the year before. They went 30 and 5 the next year, which gets him a, a job at Texas Tech. They were coming off five consecutive losing seasons when he took over in, in, in 16. They were 18 and 14 in his first year, 27 and 10 the next. And the next year, they ended up in the NCAA tournament title game. So he's a quicker fixer-upper like bounty paper towels. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're, they're one of the seven unbeatens. They're 9-0. and oh. They're the lowest ranked in Ken Palm, though. I looked it up, number 94. So the schedule hasn't been overwhelming, but – he does it a certain way. He looks for uh, shot blockers, and he likes to take chances with his guards in the passing lanes, knowing that if he's got somebody to protect the rim, uh, he's going to be okay. So he gets this guy, Jamarian Sharp from Western Kentucky, your alma mater, who was 7'4 with a 7'7 wingspan. Last season, he led the NCAA in blocks with over four a game. And then he got this guy, Cisse, a 7-footer from Oklahoma, a double transfer who was uh, just allowed to be eligible. So he's got two big-time shot blockers. And Alan Flanagan transferred from Auburn down there because Coach Beard hired his Alan's father on his staff. And they've just got – and they they signed a freshman point guard who's really playing well who was originally going to go to Ole Miss before Kermit Davis got fired. So a lot of machinations went into this uh, building of this team. But – Chris Beard has just done it everywhere he's been. It was unfortunate what happened to him at Texas. That's his alma mater and his dream job. He got into some off-the-court situations, as everybody knows. But he's a great basketball coach. And I just wonder why more athletic directors don't look to, like, the junior college ranks uh, because so many coaches who are former JUCO, and I'm talking about Chris Jans at Mississippi State, uh, Steve Forbes at Wake Forest, Grant McCaslin at Texas Tech. They've all been JUCO coaches and they've been, uh, you know, quick fix artists at the D1 level. If I were an AD, especially at a mid-major school, I think I'd be combing the JUCOs for coaches because those guys know how to put teams together in a hurry. They have to do it from scratch every year. Yeah, I'll see Grant McCaslin's team on Saturday on Fort Worth, uh, a Texas Tech team that's really good. Unfortunately, they lost Devin Cambridge uh, to an injury last week, but they still have uh, plenty of personnel and firepower, so I'll see those guys Saturday. Uh, We talked about transfers, but then there's also the the double transfer. A federal judge has issued a temporary restraining order to keep the NCAA from enforcing a rule that that makes players sit out a year if they're trying to transfer for a second time. What do you think happens here? Do you think this ends up being a permanent thing? You know, my opinion is, is I think the court should stay out of this. I, I think that it was more than generous to allow a one-time transfer 
a no sit out rule. But when you start getting in, into double transfers and no sit outs, that's dicey. And, and there, there, I don't, I don't, there's some shady stuff going on there. And, and I just don't like it. And then what's going to happen? Uh, you know, there's several people that, that were ruled ineligible as double transfers this year. What are they going to do? Suit up for two weeks and then the temporary restraining order is over. Right. Uh, th- that puts coaches in a tough situation. I know Ole Miss is waiting on another one. Brandon Murray, who started out at LSU, uh, took an ill-fated uh, one-year trip to Georgetown, which I could have told him Patrick Ewing was only going to be there one more year. But uh, I know Tennessee wanted him badly. He's a six-five guy, do-it-all, Swiss Army knife, defender. So if Ole Miss can get him in the fold, I, I think they have a chance for an upper-tier finish in the in the SEC. But I just think the court should stay out of this. Uh, the NCAA's rule, one-time transfer, no sit-out, that's more than fair enough, in my opinion. I watched some of the uh, Louisville and Arkansas State game, which was last night as we record this. And, and it made me wonder what Kenny Payne's future is at Louisville. And, uh, man, I'm really pulling for that guy. I mean, he was a fantastic player for the Cardinals when Denny Crum was coach uh, back in the 80s and uh, was an outstanding assistant with John Calipari for a long time at, at Kentucky. But, man, it just uh, that, that program just doesn't seem like it's uh, going in a good direction. Uh, they had a really a bad season last year. And I thought, well, you know, they'll, they'll turn it around. They'll add some players and uh, revamp things and, and be just fine. But uh, it just didn't look like it in that game against Arkansas State. They pulled away and won by double figures. And uh, there's also the case of a player named Karan Davis, who the school said he was dismissed after he announced he is intending to transfer. And then he came back and said he didn't ask to transfer. So uh, I, I just wonder what's going to happen with, with Kenny Payne and with that Louisville program. And, you know, of course, they've had their, their share of scandal in recent years. But you're talking about one of the great programs in college basketball. Like, it, it hurts me to see them uh, in this situation. Just thinking back to when I was a kid, uh, we lived in Louisville when the, the doctors of Dunk were going to the Final Four and winning national championships. And, and Kenny Payne was a, a part of that when he played. But, uh, boy, it, it, it was tough to watch and, and has been tough to watch for a couple seasons, I know, for their fan base. You know, it really must be true that one picture is worth a thousand words. Somebody posted on Twitter a photograph of Karan Davis in sweats in the stands watching the game. And the reason they could identify him, there were no fans in the stands. Yeah. So that that picture sort of summarized it. Uh, they're either trying to run that kid off or the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing. And there are no fans because Kenny Payne is eight and thirty-four in just a little more than a, than a season. I, I don't know, one season in six weeks. But losing Arkansas State and DePaul back to back, people are go- going volcanic up there. And I don't think he'll last out the season. I really don't. I, I just—he's a good dude. He was all always helpful to me when I wrote a column about the draft for NBA.com. Uh, not the easiest to get a hold of coaches there. Uh, th- their SIDs kind of put a tight rein on them, and I guess I can see that. But Kenny Payne always helped me out whenever I asked. And I hate to see this happen to him, but like you said, Louisville is a proud program. And th- the the thing that ADs have to weigh is, you know, is it fair that I only give him a year, year and a half, two years at most? Or am I just gonna? Is my program gonna go bankrupt because nobody is showing up? So it's really dictated by by the fannies in the seats and 
and uh, there aren't many up there right now. Karan yeah. Davis was <laughs> he he was a lonesome figure. <laughs> he, he was with a man without a team and and no fans to talk to either. And that that is really weird because you're talking about a program that plays in a really big and really nice arena, that KFC Yum Center. And they've been yeah, one of the won the national the, title ten years ago. Yeah, and, and they've been of one of the vacated, but still. right. But well, we were at the game. We saw it. We we know yeah. it happened because we were there. Yeah, we we were there. But I mean, you're, you're talking about a program that I, I remember reading this for years that they were the highest grossing in terms of dollars college basketball program in the country with the the huge attendance and really good teams and arena with all those suites and all those things oh yeah and, and that's after playing all those years at freedom hall where they averaged about nineteen thousand a game forever and ever uh that, that's just such a, a strange situation to see and i'm sure it gets fixed at some point because there, there's too much pride and and money and and tradition there at louisville to for it to not get turned around at some point, but it's really hard to watch at the moment. Uh, one feel-good story we saw was the return of Bronny James making his debut for USC the other night. The team lost to Long Beach State, but uh, he got out there and played a few months after that really scary heart situation during a, a summer workout. Had four points, two rebounds, three assists. He played 16 minutes. Uh, had a block that reminded everybody of his dad, LeBron, yeah. in, the, in the NBA Finals. But LeBron James said it was everything for his family to see Bronny make his debut for, for USC. So uh, here, here's the good things ahead for Bronny as he gets his college career underway here. It was cool to see that chase down block. And first shot he ever took was a three, and it was pure. You know, I, I did a little research, and athletes that, that have an enlarged heart or whatever the condition that he had, that can actually heal, and and they can be okay to play. So I did not know that. I, ju I just thought that maybe was a – on a, on a guaranteed retirement type situation, but uh, apparently there's no way that LeBron, who's super calculating in everything he does, would let his firstborn son go out there and play if he wasn't convinced that he was medically okay. And I just didn't realize that heart conditions like that can heal over time, and apparently uh, it has, and uh, I wish nothing but the best for the kid. It's tough enough having the last name James, uh, you know, to live up to and 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 try to emulate, uh, I don't know, come close to a, a player that many think is the best of all time, let alone have to deal with a heart issue, but uh, nothing but the best for that kid. Didn't want to uh, mention a couple notable passings as we finish up our show. George McGinnis, uh, of course, he is a Hall of Famer, played for the Indiana Pacers, and a guy who's you know, a high flyer in the NBA back in the 70s. I know he spent a short time at the Indiana University. Uh, he's, he passed away at age 73. And then also uh, my friend Frank Wycheck, who was my radio colleague and friend for a long time. We worked together for 14 years. He is a, he's a legendary figure uh, around Nashville for his time during the uh, Oilers and then, of course, the Titans. Uh through the past, the lateral and the Music City Miracle, which I was fortunate enough to witness from the press box of the stadium, uh, one of the great moments in the history of the NFL, and it kick-started a Super Bowl run for the, the Titans, uh, which has turned out to be the only one for that franchise so 
far. But Frank was a great player, had over 500 catches during his NFL career. But more importantly for me, was a, a good friend and a guy I spent a lot of time with during our, our 14 years together on radio. And Chris, you were part of our show during that time. And um, I know you and Frank had always had good interactions. And uh, he, he loved sports. Yeah. He loved college basketball, the everything you can think of. He, he was a sports fan. But uh, he passed away at his home, which actually is in Chattanooga, not far from where you live. And uh, just want to wish Frank's family, his daughters and, and grandkids, and of course his brother Teddy and his mom Maria. Uh, they, they live in Philadelphia. And I know them and uh, thank the world of, of all those folks. But uh, wish everybody the best with Frank's family and friends with his passing last weekend. Yeah, I tell you, I was with you guys for 13 of those 14 years. And I always thought of Frank as your Al McGuire. Uh, he wasn't probably the most prepared like Al McGuire wasn't, but he went in there through the sheer force of his charisma uh, and, and just would always ask me good questions. You know, you you, are, you would always start it out, and, and then Mark Howard, uh, God rest his soul, uh, he's also not, no longer with us, would ask a couple, and then Frank would, would ask one, and, and he'd just kind of pull it out of thin air, but, but uh, you could just tell he was having fun and living large and you know, he, he was battling uh, CTE because of his career in football. And, and I know his family is generously, he, he insisted on this. Uh, uh, his uh, uh, doctors are going to be able to, to do work uh, thanks to his generosity uh, and, and re- do some research into CTE and maybe how it can be prevented. But yeah, charismatic dude, funny dude, and uh, I was just thrilled to be a part of your show. I, I'll, I'll never forget when your producer, Paul Bible, called me and, and said, yeah, the guys want you to be on the show and they want to pay you. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> they want to pay me to, to talk about basketball? And I'm like, he said, you can think about it for a while if you want. I said, no, I'm in. <laughs> and thank God, because I... You know, I, you and I were already friends, but, I, you know, it solidified our friendship and helped lead to this show. And, you know, I'll miss Frank, and, and uh, I know you'll miss him. Uh, what a great guy. And then George McGinnis, I, I mean, he was one of my boyhood heroes, and I did not realize this. He was the last – he was on the last team uh, at Indiana before Bobby Knight was hired. Oh, wow. The, co- the coach was named Lou Watson – and at that time, freshmen were ineligible, so he didn't get to play. But in 70-71, when he was a sophomore, he became the first sophomore in Big Ten history to lead the league in scoring and rebounding. He averaged 29.9 points a game. He was the LeBron James of his day. You know, just a big guy that probably never touched a weight. He was just blessed by God. And and uh, I remember those old ABA games, too. I, I, I know you remember them. And some of those games and players uh if, i'm going to recommend a, a book if nobody's ever read it that's listening uh terry pluto wrote it called loose balls mm-hmm. it's about the uh the the aba and it, it, it was such a crazy league but george mcginnis and julius Irving they kind of epitomized the talent that that league had until obviously the, it merged with the nba but sorry to see him go as well but uh my thoughts are, are with Frank's family. Uh, I know he had two daughters, and I did not realize he had grandchildren, but I'm going to miss that guy. 
Yeah, me too. We had a lot of fun together for a long time uh, doing that show, and uh, we did all sorts of goofy challenges and things with Frank. Uh, he would try to hit yeah. off fast-pitch softball pitchers or uh, stars of the Little did League he, World did Series. Did he ever do it? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we one uh, morning we did our show from Hendersonville, and uh, there was a couple different pitchers, fast-pitch softball pitchers. One of them played at Tennessee. I, I'm drawing a blank on her name, but she was a lefty. And she threw it past Frank a whole bunch of times. And <laughs> <laughs> did he ever? Did he ever lay a bat on? Well, him? There, there was another pitcher that I think maybe had played at Cumberland or, or one of the, the small colleges around here, and I, I felt like she gave him a couple of fat pitches to try to <laughs> just get some confidence. He popped didn't want to show him. He, up. he rolled one up the middle, and he popped one up that would have been a, a pop out to shortstop. And then there were a lot of whiffs there as well. And then he also batted against Brock Myers, who was. Uh, a young man who was part of the Goodlesville team that won the U.S. championship at the Little League World Series in 2012, and he went on to play at Tennessee Tech. Like he ended up having a, a college career as well. And uh, you know, Frank was saying that he could take Brock Myers deep, and so we did our show from Davidson Academy here in Nashville one morning, and it was cold. And uh, he got up there and batted against Brock. And about the first thing that happened was, you know, Brock was pretty nervous because there's all these kids around and all this, you know, hoopla. And oh, the yeah. first thing he did was like throw one up and in and hit Frank on the hand, and it was freezing cold. Oh. And and the the whole thing kind of devolved from there. But that was pretty funny. And we had donut eating contest. And uh, I remember one time. We we shot this college basketball commercial uh, for the radio station, and we went out to Memorial Gym, and everybody played a role that had to do with basketball. And Frank's role was as the head coach, so he was you know dressed up in a suit like you know coaches used to wear back then. This is probably like yeah, it was probably about fifteen years ago. And, back uh, in the dark ages. Yeah, back in the dark ages. And uh, he, he was dressed up. He was the coach. I think he might even have like a rolled up program or something. Willie Donick and, and me, <laughs> we were the players. And uh, Willie was wearing his old uniform from Vanderbilt. And I borrowed a uniform from Belmont. And so we, and George Plaster was the referee. And uh, so we did oh this jump gosh. ball scene where, you know, Plaz threw it up and, and Willie and I did the jump ball. And I always say that Willie fouled me on this uh, this jump ball. He, he, <laughs> I felt like he pushed me out of the way. But it was it was a great spot for the radio station. It was really funny to see all our different people playing those roles. And I think Mark was in the stands eating popcorn or something. But it, it was great stuff. And uh, I always remember those times, man. I had a lot of fun with old Frankie. And uh, you he, guys did a great job yeah, with that show. Yeah, I, I mean, it. at one time it, it was number one in the nation in terms of market saturation yeah you guys built that from scratch we did we started it from from zero and uh this town had never really had a morning sports talk show like what we did and uh it was a really special time and sometimes you don't appreciate it when you're in the moment uh what what, what's really going on and what it all means but uh i've had so many people say nice things uh, about frank and about the show and uh i just want to express how much i appreciate everybody's support and what's been a really really challenging week and time for me and of course it hasn't been that long since we lost mark as you mentioned about a year and a half ago so uh definitely we'll keep uh, frank and his family in my thoughts chris uh look forward to a big weekend coming up we we talked about the schedule off the top of the show but enjoy the games and uh, we'll catch up soon buddy safe travels brother he's chris dorch i'm kevin ingram that's the blue ribbon college basketball podcast we'll talk to you next time